Revelation chapter 21. There are some things that you just, you spend so much time waiting for and preparing for that when they happen, there's an overflow of emotion. And we're getting to that part of Revelation where the wait is finally over. Um, This is the happy ending that we've been waiting for. Isaiah anticipated it. I mean, this is our, this has gone all the way back to the Garden of Eden when Adam and Eve sin and, uh, God tells Eve that she would give birth to a son who, uh, who would, who would, uh, strike the serpent's head and the serpent would strike his heel. Even at that, even, even back then, even in the Garden of Eden, right after the first sin, there has been the promise of deliverance. We have waited for, through the centuries, through the millennia, people have been waiting for the moment that we're about to read about. In Revelation 21, Isaiah talks about it. In Isaiah 65, he says, For behold, this is God talking, I create a new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come to mind. I find it fascinating that in his in his as he's listening to God speak to him and say, the, speak these words to my people. The way that God talks to the prophet and the prophet relays that to people. I can picture him almost with eyes closed at this point, trying to envision what that would be like. Looking at what Israel had been through. Looking at how God had brought a wealthy man But a man who really did no favors for God whatsoever, who really had no righteousness of his own account to begin with, but God chose him anyway and said, through you all nations will be blessed. I will make you into a great nation. I will bless the nations through you. He takes this man who has no real reason to be following God has no real reason. We don't, we don't even know that he was worshiping God, that he was, he was, he even had faith in the true God at that point in his life. And yet God reaches down to him with a promise. It's vague, but it's still a promise. And yes, he got ahead of God. And yes, he tried to make it work on his own terms and it didn't work. And boy, did that create a whole mess. But God still did what he was going to do, still gave him a son. When he was a hundred years old, a son that he later asked him to sacrifice, this time around he was more faithful. And we see the seed beginning to germinate. Unfortunately, (laughs) that seed, as it germinated, produced more and more and more of the same story. Men who were good, but not perfect. Men who tried to do what was right in some cases, and in other cases, ran away from God. Men who would wrestle with God. Men who would climb aboard a ship and try to sail in the opposite direction from God. Some men that would completely ignore God and say, no, you can't leave. You're my slaves. You're staying here. I don't care what magic you perform. I don't, who is, who is this God of yours? I've never heard of him. But even among God's people, people who would stand in the gap, so to speak, that would decry the sins of culture, Year after year, about 300 years, different men would stand in Israel and in Judah, in Jerusalem and in Samaria and in Ephraim and in cities all over the promised land, 
telling people, repent, repent of your sins, repent of your injustice, repent of your wrongs, repent of your oppressive practices, repent of your accepting of bribes, repent of the way that you mistreat the sojourner. And repent of the way that you enslave your brothers. Repent of the way that you oppress the poor. Repent of your injustices. And yet this prophet, this one, hears from God, I'm creating something new. I'm creating a new heavens and a new earth. And it's one thing to say, I'm going to make something new that's better than something old. It's a whole other thing to say it's going to be so good Remember the old. And yet that's what God says. But be glad and rejoice forever in that which I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem to be a joy and her people to be a gladness. I will rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people. No more shall be heard in it the sound of weeping and the cry of distress. No more shall there be in it an infant who lives but a few days or an old man who does not fill out his days. For the young man shall die a hundred years old. The sinner a hundred years old shall be accursed. They shall build houses and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and eat their fruit. They shall not build and another inhabit. They shall not plant and another eat. For like the days of a tree shall be the days of my people and my chosen shall long enjoy the work of their hands. They shall not labor in vain or bear children for calamity. For they shall be the offspring of the blessed of the Lord and their descendants with them. Before they call, I will answer. While they are yet speaking, I will hear. The wolf and the lamb shall graze together. The lion shall eat straw like the ox, and dust shall be the serpent's food. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, says the Lord. He's seeing a couple of things here. He's seeing the promise of a renewed Jerusalem, but it's very fuzzy. This is the kind of thing that would, I imagine, make him anticipate what was to come. But alas, it wasn't to come yet. There would be centuries more into the future before the promised Messiah would be born in a feeding trough outside of a tiny little town that hardly anybody really recognized. And the first people to greet him? Well, let's see. You got an unmarried woman, the carpenter that she's engaged to, a few shepherds, eventually some wise men from a long, far away off would make it there. Take them a little while to get there, though. That was it. Didn't matter. He began working God's work. He began doing the things that he needed to do. He was he was spoken of by an elderly woman and an old man in the temple when he was just eight days old. Next time we see him, he's 12, and he's astounding religious teachers with his knowledge. Not only the answers to their questions, but his own questions were astounding them. Then we see him again at 30, walking up to John the Baptist saying, baptize me, doing miracles, preaching like nobody they had ever heard, calling not only for repentance, but demonstrating what that repentance looks like, teaching in parables and stories in ways that both astounded his hearers and drove lessons straight into their hearts. And after a couple of years, three years about, he's on a cross, being crushed for our sins, all part of God's plan. 
didn't look like it at the time. That's okay. A couple days later, it made a lot more sense. But even then, it wasn't quite yet. This hope goes far beyond just a hope for individual salvation. There was a recognition all throughout the history of, of the earth, all throughout the history of the Israelite people, those who were faithful, who, who prayed to God and who longed for the Messiah to come, who waited desperately for God to do what He was going to do. They knew that it couldn't just be at making individuals right. He had to deal with the entire cosmos. You see, because once something is affected by sin, the whole thing is messed up. It's like yeast in, in, in dough. Once you get yeast in there, it spreads. It works its way through the dough, and the whole dough is leavened. And if you want unleavened bread, you got to throw out the leavened dough in order to get some more. you got to start with a whole new batch. You can't just reform what's there. You can't just take it out. You can't just get it under a microscope and separate out all the yeast from the rest. You can't do that. It's now part of it. If you leave it sitting there, it's not going to separate. It's not like milk. If you just leave it sitting a while, it'll start to separate out. Or some form of juice or like a vinaigrette dressing. It doesn't do that. They knew if God was going to do His work, He had to do His work on the entirety of creation, not just on individual people. I think we miss this in the West because we are so key on the individual that we miss the interconnectedness of everything. Don't hear what I'm saying. I'm not saying we're all striving to be part of this one essence or anything like that. That's that's not true. But what I am saying is the whole cosmos is affected by sin, and every single bit of it needs to be reformed, renewed, remade. So by the time that John looks up and sees the sight that he sees in Revelation 21, let's just say it's a, it's been a long time coming. Then I saw Revelation 21.1. This is the last time he says that he saw something. The next time he says this phrase, uh, then I saw, it, it's actually, uh, it's what he didn't see. I saw no temple in the city. We'll get to that, uh, next week. But he says, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. There's debate. How, how, how are you going to completely get rid of the old heaven and old earth and then hear this one coming down? I don't know. John is describing what he's seeing and I'm not quite sure physically how it works, okay? But I don't have to understand that. What I do know is that John is seeing a whole new creation. It's not just patchwork. Remember I said today, you can paint over the rotten fence, but if it's rotten, it's still going to be rotten. This isn't God painting over the rotten fence. This is him building a new fence. This isn't God just just patching up or putting a Band-Aid on a problem. This isn't just God giving some antibiotics to treat the wound. This is God completely remaking all of creation. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. Now, where have we heard the language of something old passing away so that something new can come? Where have I heard that? Yeah, Second Corinthians 5. For if any man is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things have passed away. Doesn't feel like it sometimes, does it? But it's true. Behold, all things are become new. 
So there's a new creation, new heaven, new earth. The first ones passed away and the sea was no more. Now to understand this, I'm going to take you back to Genesis chapter 1. I know we're covering like big, broad scopes, but I want you to see the beauty of of what John is writing here. Because if you don't understand the pictures throughout Scripture, this is just going to sound like, well, it's going to sound like a hymn we sing sometimes where we're not really paying attention to it, or we've sung it so much that it's kind of become old hat. I don't want it to be old hat. This is new creation. It doesn't need to be old anything, right? So, so go back to Genesis chapter 1. What is the first thing we read about in Genesis chapter 1 after the general statement, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth? What's the, what's the first description that we read? You can turn there, it's okay. I will, I will never be upset for you using your Bibles. This isn't, this isn't a closed book test, okay? The earth was without form and void. Tohu wabohu is the Hebrew. It's like, um, you, you ever seen those chocolate bunnies on the shelf at Easter time? And you're all excited, right? And then you bite into it and it's hollow. That's the void part. Now imagine it without the shell part either. <laughs> there's nothing here. There's no shell. There's no filling. It's, it's completely empty, void, formless, nothing. And the darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. From the very beginning of creation, there is this concept of chaos. And nowhere is that concept more clearly seen in the ancient world than at sea. Think about it. Your promised land, there's this giant sea over here, the Mediterranean Sea, right? Okay, You can stand on top of some of the mountains and you can see the Mediterranean Sea. That's how close it is in much of the promised land. And so you can actually sit on top of a mountain, look across the way, five miles away, you can see the Mediterranean Sea, and you can see storms beginning to form over the sea. They would start to form just offshore and then sweep through, right? And and it does this here. If you live on the Gulf, you can watch the Gulf, and you can see storms rising up in the early afternoon. That's why we always have rain in the afternoons, because well, coming in off the Gulf, it starts to create storms and then it rushes inland and there's, there's afternoon thunderstorms. That's, that's how this works. So, so the storms are forming over the water and come over. And you see the tumultuous waves beginning to form. You see the rocking boats. You see how out of nowhere it just gets bad all of a sudden. The story of Jesus walking on the water happens in the middle of storm over the Sea of Galilee. One of these fast pop-up storms. One of these storms that you don't see coming, but, but within like two or three minutes before it hits, you've got to batten down the hatches quick because it's going to be a doozy. It's that kind of a storm. The chaos of the sea, not knowing what goes beyond there. Many people never went beyond that sea. They never went to Tarshish, which would have been in Spain. They never went to Italy or Rome. They never went to Greece. They never went past that sea. And so there was this idea of the unknown, the great unknown. There was this idea of the chaos of it, the tumultuous waters, the way beating back and forth, the fact that it's so big that you cannot see what's past it. That picture is developed throughout Scripture. And when you see waters, you see the waters, um, the, the, well, um, you, you see a man that doesn't have faith. It's like a, 
ship tossed to and fro on the sea, right? He's back and forth. He's double-minded. He can't make up. I'm going to do this. Oh, no, wait. I'm going to do this now. Oh, hold on. I'm, you know, he's just back and forth. The chaos of the sea is indicative of the chaos of sin. It puts us in such a position that there's nothing stable. You put a boat on water, even with gentle waves, it won't stay still. It will move. You tie it to something, a dock, it'll still move. It just won't move as far. You put an anchor down, it'll still move, just not as far. If God's new creation is going to be perfect, this kind of chaos can't be there. Because this kind of chaos is representative of the chaos in our own hearts when we aren't following Christ. So the sea, there's no place for a sea. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. I love the picture. Prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Think back, men, on your wedding day. You're standing up there. Maybe maybe you're getting married in a church. Maybe you're getting married in you know some other place. But, but you're standing there. You're waiting for the bride. And then you see her for the first time all decked out. And you just think this is amazing. Right? Right, guys? Yes. Shake your head. Yeah. It's okay. I don't know what it's like to be the bride. I don't know all the hours. I know somewhat, but not, not experientially. The hours that are put into preparing for that day. But based on the look on Carrie's face, when those doors opened at that church, I'm pretty sure she was happy about it too. And here the city is described as prepared as a bride is for her husband. What's interesting to me is it's God himself that has prepared this bride. And I heard a loud voice from the throne. This is not God's voice. This is one, I guess, that is just beside the throne. Maybe one of the four elders that's surrounding the throne. But it's coming from that direction. Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. Where have I seen this before? God dwelling with man. Maybe it was in the fire by day and the or the fire by night and the cloud by day, leading the Israelites through the wilderness. Maybe it was Emmanuel, God with us. Maybe maybe it was back in the garden before the fall when God was coming down every day and walking with Adam and Eve in the early evening hours. You see, now that he's made all things right, now that he has made a new creation, he's made not only the creation new, he's made the people in that creation new. Now God can dwell among them permanently. They will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. This has been often promised by the prophets, but man, it's finally coming to pass. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. It's all made new. As if this wasn't good enough, then we have something that is rare in this book. Verse 5, And he who was seated on the throne said, This is only like the second, maybe third time in the book that God himself has spoken. It's the second time that he specifically identified as God speaking. All of this has been relayed by angels. All of this has been relayed by messengers of God. All of this has been relayed by John and John describing what he's seeing. Now it's God's voice talking. And what does he say? Behold, (laughs) 
as if he has to get your attention with that kind of voice. Can you imagine the voice of God? I'm pretty sure if he starts talking, we're all going to be listening, right? I hope we're all listening, right? We're all listening if God talks. Behold, I am making all things new. Also, he said, it's like he turns to John and says, write this down. (laughs) I imagine John has forgot what he's doing and he stopped writing with his pen and he's just gazing in wonder at what he's seeing. And and then God has to say, "Uh, John, keep keep writing. (laughs) Write this down. For these words are trustworthy and true. The word trustworthy here is just as easily rendered as faithful. Faithful and true. Where have I heard that? Oh yeah, the rider on the white horse is called faithful and true. The words of of God are called trustworthy, faithful, true. In fact, Jesus says, I am the truth. So you know his words are true. Hey, hey John, don't forget to write. They need to hear these words. And he said to me, it is done. All right, Greek lesson. I know you'll like this. You, The rest of y'all, you just put up with it but I know you'll like this. It is done. It's one word. It is a perfect, active, indicative. Perfect. It's happened in the past, but everything, but the effects of it continue on. Okay? Active. God is actively doing the work. Or in this case, has actively finished the work. He's the one doing it. It's not being done uh, by someone else. God himself is doing it indicative statement of fact this is signed sealed and delivered it's done it has been completed there's nothing else to do there is nothing else to say about it it is done it's the same kind of word as to tell us die it is finished it's done and there's nothing else that will undo it nothing else to complete it nothing else that will mess it up I am the Alpha and the Omega. I am the A and the Z, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty, I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. Is it without payment because it's cheap? No, it's already paid for. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. Now, if it stopped here, this would be wonderful, but it doesn't stop here. Verse 8, but as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Very quickly, let's run through these. Why is cowardly in this list? You know, you know what I really think he's saying? I think he's really saying that if you don't have the perseverance to stand with me, you were never with me in the first place. That's why cowardly is first. Warning, church. Warning. Listen to me here. Warning. If you are not willing to stand with Christ through the thickest part of it, if you are not willing to stand with Christ in the most difficult moments, if you are not willing to stand with Christ when it is hardest, you are never with Christ to begin with. John says in in one of his epistles, they were with us and then they left us because they were never really one of us. That's my paraphrase. What he's saying is they look like they were one of us, but they ended up leaving because they weren't with us to begin with. They were just 
tagging along. I'm going to warn you, church, things will get harder. If we are obeying God, if we are doing what God has called us to do, things will get harder. And if we are not willing to stand firm, if we are not willing to hold tight to the principles, hold fast to the gospel that has saved us from sin, if we are not willing to be Christ followers when it is most difficult, then we are not Christ followers at all. Either Christ is Lord of all or He is not Lord at all. I can't remember who said it, but they're right. The faithless, I don't think that, I don't think that really requires much explanation. Those who have no faith. The detestable, your version may have vile. I think that's probably a better word just because we don't use it very often. And, and it strikes as being someone who has defiled themselves. And that's the meaning of the word. Murderers, sexually immoral, I think that's very self-explanatory. The sorcerers, the ones who practice all sorts of dark magic. The word here actually is our, where we get our word pharmacy from. Because they would use drugs to induce altered states of consciousness. That's, that's why. The idolaters, the ones who worship false gods, and all liars. When I look at this list, I, I, I see a couple of them that could fit me in at various points of my life. And I'm sure you do too. The difference is these are unrepentant of their sins. But for the grace of God, there go I. And so, without trying to sound like the Pharisee from this morning's parable, I thank God that I'm no longer like that because He has shown me great, great mercy. So, let me just make that clear. He did it, not me, okay? I... I, I, all I did was agree to it. <laughs> That's about it. I, I just said, okay. Yes, Lord. And that was it. Uh, everything else was Him. But these, they don't belong in this new creation. All right. So we have a new heaven, a new earth. We could start talking about New Jerusalem, but based on how much there is to talk about this city, God is doing great work. And it doesn't look like it. But he will make all things new. So be patient. Endure what comes before you, church. Don't quit. Don't give up. Let's let God do the work in us to make us new. Not only those who may not know him, but those who do know him to continue, continue that sanctification work in you, to keep working on you, to keep making you more and more like his son. Cause I sure I sure would hate to die, get up to heaven, and God say, well, you're saved, but man, have I got a lot of work on you. Let's keep growing and changing and doing for him so that we can be evidence that God is the one who makes all things new. Amen? Father, we ask you to make all things new and to hurry up, Lord. But God, we also recognize that it's in your timing, and we know that sometimes it's not going to be fast enough for our sinful will it's not going to be fast enough for our desires. Even, even the righteous and holy ones that say, that say, Lord, I want you to do your will. We echo the sentiment of David to save us, O Lord our God, and gather us from the nations that we may give thanks to your holy name and glory in your praise. Father, we, we sing, we pray. We recount in our mind the, the ages past, the prophets, 
of old, the saints of God who have gone before us, who have, who have pointed the way to Messiah, pointed the way to God's work, pointed the way to what you're doing to show us that you are the God who makes all things new. You are the God that breathes life into dry bones and forms an army out of them. You are the God who takes two very, very different cultures of people People who are from Israel and people who are from Judah. People who, who have fought against each other for years and years and have brought them together as one in your hand and said, these are my people who have taken Jews and Gentiles, who have taken men and women, who have taken people of all races, of all genders, of all walks of life, and have brought us together and made us into a people of God. People that have been redeemed, who have been adopted by Your Son, who have been transformed by the renewing of our minds, who are still being transformed this day, who are being sanctified until that day comes when You do Your finishing work and make us holy. God, we look forward to it. And, and we ask You, as John does at the end of Revelation, even so come quickly. Lord Jesus, hurry up in your time. Give us the patience to endure in the meantime. God, that we, well, as Peter said, that we would be that chosen race, that holy nation, that people set apart, that we may proclaim the excellencies of Him who called us out of darkness and into His marvelous light. God, help us be the ones who demonstrate the truth, who live the gospel, and who boldly proclaim the Messiah. Make us your ambassadors. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.